So let's start with a question. Why are you here? Harold, give us your name. Uh, you know, you can hold the mic. Okay. No, you're not an invalid. I don't have to hold All the right. mic for you. Yeah, okay. Can I sit down? Uh, okay, yeah, you okay. can sit down. Not stand up, Harold. Go oh, ahead. Okay. Since you brought it up, go ahead, stand up. <laughs> okay. Sorry, because the rest of you have to. <laughs> name is Harold Richards. I came here for several reasons. Um, I've been blessed with having been able to uh, retire, and uh, I, these past two, three years, I've the Lord is just pressing upon my heart to increase my studies, my understanding of Scripture, and especially Old Testament. Been studying that uh, very faithful and very regularly. The pastor, he teaches in the way that that encourages me and and helps me to grow the most. He he loves back the background, the history, the of of the, of the peoples and the areas, and I love that also. So I'm here as much for that as to continue my growth and studies in the, in the Old Testament. Okay, thank you, Harold. Uh, Lynn. <laughs> Lynn Thomas, and I'm here because I'm clueless about Daniel, but I was in a study you did on Revelation, which helped me immensely, so I figured this is going to be the same, right? Okay. <laughs> uh, I hope you're not disappointed. Uh, young lady, why are you here tonight? I have a crush on the pastor. Oh, okay. She said exactly what I told her to say. So I had a little bit more added to it, but she added it. So why are you here tonight, John? Um, I enjoy prophecy. I enjoy the book of Daniel, and I don't mind the person teaching the class. <laughs> well, that's good, because if you mind the person teaching the class... I guess you have to find another class. Uh, so I hope you're not, that none of you are disappointed as we go through the study. Uh, for those of you who want to dig deeper, some of you may wonder, okay, what sources are you using? Uh, so there are many sources that I will be consulting, but working through the study, the two major sources that I'm using in my study is John Walvoord's commentary on Daniel, uh, The Key to Prophetic Revelation. Uh, John Walvoord was a longtime uh, professor at Dallas Theological Seminary. And so he, in the area of prophetic scriptures, I find him to be very, very helpful. The other book that I'm using is a book entitled The Book of Daniel, Exposition from a Messianic Jewish Perspective. And it is written uh, by Arnold Frutenbaum. And it, you know, between the two commentaries, uh, Walver's commentary is an older commentary, and it's probably, I don't want to say it's more technical than Frutenbaum's is, but Frutenbaum's will, will give a lot of information, especially how the Jewish people view the book of Daniel and the interpretations of the passages. And we'll be talking about that as we go along. And this is, he is, this is easy reading. It has a lot of information in it. Now, when I say it's easy reading, it's not reading a novel or something, but for a theological book, I find uh, Arnold Frutenbaum, and I've had opportunities to uh, hear him teach in person as well, and he is an, an expert, and he has a website with all kinds of materials on it, very sound. Those will be the two primary sources that I will be dealing with. Now, we are not going to get caught up in, as we go through, there will be things that I may mention, you know, there's debates or arguments about certain things. Uh, some of those things will be for the scholars to debate over. You know, we will mention them. If somebody asks about it, we can talk about it briefly, but I'm not going to get bogged down with that. I want us to be able to go through this book, uh, and we're going to go through it verse by verse, all the way through the book, and regardless of how long it takes us to do it.
Okay, so open your, uh, your study guide there. And the, the first thing we need to talk about is the date of the book of Daniel. We're going to start, before we jump into chapter 1, with a little data about the book and uh, some things that will help us understand the breakdown of the book. All right, Daniel is carried off to Babylon in 605 B.C. This book covers events through 536 B.C. So Daniel begins with Daniel being carried off to Babylon. Uh, there were three times that they came, that King Nebuchadnezzar came, took people from, or attacked Jerusalem. When Jerusalem would rebel against the Babylonians, Nebuchadnezzar would come and, and put that down. In 605, uh, Daniel is carried away. Uh, the book was probably written in the last decade of Daniel's life. Uh, most conservative scholars are going to say Daniel wrote this. He was probably at that time in his 70s or 80s when this book was written. All right. Who is the author of the book? All right. Conservative scholars overwhelmingly believe Daniel is the author of the book. Beginning in chapter 7, Daniel will write in the first person. So if you want to take your, your Bibles and, and turn to Daniel now, let's go over to chapter 7. All right, in chapter 7, verse 2, it says, Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night. So Daniel is saying, this is me speaking. Down in verse 15. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious. Daniel is saying, this is me. I am telling you, this, you know, I, uh, this is autobiography or however you say that. Uh, <laughs> autobiographical. There we go. All right, that's, uh, Daniel is saying, I'm the one who is writing this, who's doing it. Down in verse 28 of chapter 7. Here is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me and my color changed. But I kept the matter in my heart. So in chapter 7, from chapter 7 on, and we'll talk about the divisions in the book, there are references there where Daniel is saying that he wrote the book. Now, do we have a problem if Daniel didn't write the book? Oh, wait a second. When it comes to issues of the inspiration of the Scripture... Do we have a problem if in the book, in chapter 7, it's talking about Daniel writing the book. What if he didn't write it? What if somebody else wrote the book of Daniel? Does that create a problem? Yes. Right. It does create a problem because now we have something being stated that's not true. Now... I said most conservative scholars believe that Daniel wrote the book. Now, they overwhelmingly believe that, not only because of these references in the book in the, the first person from Daniel, but secondly, and really most importantly as well, Jesus demonstrated and said that Daniel wrote the book. In Matthew chapter 24... In verse 15, in the Olivet Discourse, Jesus is talking about what's going to happen in the future, and he talks about the abomination of desolation, and he said, which is spoken of by Daniel the prophet. 
Now, I don't know for you, but for me, if Jesus believed Daniel wrote the book, that's good enough for me. Because I think he knows. Now, why is there any uh, debate over whether Daniel wrote the book or not? Why would liberal scholars say that Daniel did not write this book? The timing. The timing of what? Okay, so there, there, all right, some of the documentation is, is created. The, the big issue is the things that Daniel sees in the future and prophesies with accuracy. And so the, the problem is with the liberal uh, scholars is they say Daniel couldn't have written the book. Nobody could have known at that time what would happen to Babylon what would happen to the Medo-Persian Empire, what would happen to the Greek Empire, what would happen to the Roman Empire. Nobody could foresee that. And so, therefore, if you remove the supernatural, if you move, take that out of the equation, then you say, Daniel couldn't have written this book because no one would have known. And that's, that's basically a major issue for us all the time between conservative scholarship and liberal scholarship. If you deny miracles, if you deny God intervening in history and a God who knows what's going to happen before it happens, that creates a problem for you because you have to find some type of way to explain how Daniel could have possibly written this book. And they would say he couldn't have. Do you get that? And so it is because of the prophetic nature of the book and the things that are accurately predicted that they say Daniel could not have written this book. But because we believe in a God who what? He knows the future as well as he knows the past. There are no surprises with him. And not only does he know it, he's what? He's in control of it. So therefore, prophecy is no problem for our God to give and to predict what's going to occur. So we would conclude that Daniel is the author of this book. Now, the book of Daniel is going to demonstrate for us, like Esther, God's work with his people Israel, even when they are in captivity because of their disobedience. And we're going to talk about why the nation of Israel is in captivity. It's because of their disobedience to God. But does that mean that God gives up on them because they disobey him? Okay. The nature of our God is he's a God of love. He's a God of grace. He's a God of mercy. And aren't we thankful for that? Yes. Aren't you thankful that God didn't give up on you at some point in your life? God has made promises to the nation of Israel that he's going to keep. And we're going to see that as we go through this book. And God is going to be faithful. Even though they, some of God's prom, promises are conditional, other of God's promises are unconditional. And when God makes an unconditional promise, he is going to carry it out. It is not dependent upon the obedience of his people. Now, there are some blessings that are based on his people obeying him. But when it comes to God keeping his word, God always keeps his word. Amen. And so we can count on that. And Daniel, like Esther, shows how God is working with the nation of Israel, even though they're carried away because of them disobeying him. Daniel also prophesies about God's coming kingdom 
and world powers from Babylon to Christ's kingdom. All of that is talked about in this book, and we'll be seeing that as we unfold it. Now, the book can be divided up. Uh, there's a couple of ways that scholars look at the book and divide it up. Uh, traditionally, it's divided into two parts. Chapters 1 through 6, which are historical in nature. And then chapters 7 to 12, which are predictive in nature. So as we're going through the book of Daniel, uh, we'll probably cruise pretty uh, smoothly through the first six chapters. Because they're more historical and telling us what happened. Beginning with chapter 7, we get into the predictive uh, stuff and we'll probably, it'll probably take us longer, and we'll probably have more questions as we go uh, through that. There's another way to divide the book up. Uh, some divide the book up and say chapter 1 is an introduction to the book. Chapters 2 through 7 are talking about the times of the Gentiles and written in Aramaic. And in chapters 8 through 12, it talks about Israel in relation to the Gentiles, and it's written in Hebrew. You know, another attack upon the book where it would be said, this is written by more than one person, would be because of the two different languages that are used that the book is written in. But Daniel had his purposes for writing in those different languages. Now, one thing we need to recognize as we're going through the book, the book is not written in chronological order. Chapters 1 through 6 are in chronological order. But from chapter 7 on, what we're going to be seeing there, some of the visions, some of the dreams, some of the stuff that's revealed to Daniel, it didn't happen after the events of chapter 7. Now, many of those things go back into other places in the book. And we'll note that as we're, we're looking at it. But keep in mind, it is not written in chronological order. So events in chapter 8 doesn't always mean that they occurred before chapter 6. You understand that with me? Okay. All right. Daniel is apocalyptic writing. Now... What does that mean? All right. It's talking about end times. Uh, it is unveiling truth that would have been concealed. Now, as we look at the Bible, Daniel joins Ezekiel and Zechariah from the Old Testament and the book of Revelation from the New Testament as the only books in the Bible in this literature genre. That doesn't mean there might not be other parts of books that might be in that genre, but these are the books that are written in this uh, style of writing that they would call apocalyptic. Now, that poses an, an issue that we need to talk about here, and that's going to be how do we interpret the book. So, there are different approaches to apocalyptic uh, literature in the Bible. One approach is, because it's apocalyptic, it's not to be taken literally. We are to look at the, the, it's written in signs, in symbols, it's written in hidden messages, and so therefore... We can't understand it in a traditional, uh, literal fashion. That is one viewpoint that is uh, often used in different uh, prophecy passages in the Bible. Uh, R.C. Sproul, who was a wonderful man of God, who's gone home to be with the Lord. Years ago, we were going to use a, a book of his to teach doctrine to a church that we were working with down in Mexico. We liked the book because it was already translated into Spanish. When we came to the area of eschatology in the book, his opening sentence was something like this. We know that we cannot take the apocalyptical 
passages of Scripture in the Bible and interpret them literally. And my response to that is, how do you know that? Because I don't know that. Language was written in a way for us to understand. Now, are there signs and symbols? Obviously, we're going to see signs and symbols. Our buddy Neb here, who's over here in the corner. Those of you in the back, I'll lift him up so you can, you can see Neb. We've got to give him a nickname. I was in here earlier, looked up, and I thought there was another person in the room. <laughs> uh, but... Uh, Certainly, God is using in the dream of Nebuchadnezzar and in the image that he saw, there are symbols within that image. But that doesn't mean that what's said cannot be taken in a literal fashion. When the Bible, I am a firm believer that when the scriptures use signs and symbols that it will be clear from the passage that they are signs and symbols. And oftentimes the Bible itself gives us the interpretation of those signs and symbols right within the passage itself. You know, the, for instance, you take the book of Revelation. John sees candlesticks. And the Lord makes it known to him they represent the seven churches. Okay, so I believe the Bible interprets those things for us. Now, when we say that, when we say we're taking a literal interpretation to the passage, a consistent literal interpretation, we are not arguing for what some uh, accuse us of, of letterism. And they would say, hey, if you believe everything's literal, when Jesus says, I am the door... That means you believe Jesus was like, uh, uh, like one of those doors that swings open when we come in here. That's ridiculous. There are metaphors used in the scriptures. There are different things that are used. As, but it is clear and it is obvious. And it's the, the ordinary language that is understood. You know, we, we talk about the sun rising and the sun setting, Right? Now, we know that's not really what occurs. So are we incorrect when we say, hey, the sun rose this morning? Was it, or it's a beautiful sunset out there tonight. No, we understand what we're talking about. That will be clear in the scriptures. And in places where it's not clear, we'll talk about that. And we'll be honest and say, okay, here, here's this passage. Uh, not everything in the book of Daniel is easy to understand. Let me tell you, it's taking me a whole lot longer to work through to get ready to teach some of the chapters that are coming up than what I anticipated it was going to take me. Because we are going to be dealing with what I would call the meat of the Word of God. And, and sometimes you get a piece of tough meat, don't you? And you got to chew on it a while. And things. So that's what we're going to be doing as we're going through uh, Daniel. Also... Let me make this clear. I will seek to give you an answer to whatever questions you ask, but I don't have all the answers. And there are sometimes I'm going to say, I don't know. I don't know. Here's, here's a possible explanation of it. So if you came in here saying, and you've got your list of, of these questions that no Bible teacher has been able to answer for you yet, you've come to the wrong study because I won't be able to answer them either. But whatever questions are asked, I will attempt. If I don't know an answer or have an answer, I will do my best to get you an answer and bring it back the next week when we talk together. But we are going to take a grammatical, historical approach to the language in the book of Daniel for our understanding. And basically, there's a law that's called Cooper's Law that says, when the plain, ordinary sense of the Scripture makes sense, seek no other sense. Okay. So, any questions before we jump into chapter 1? Okay, Daniel chapter 1.
I'm not sure what that is, but whatever we're doing, let's do it. Okay. <laughs> let's all do it together on one. Hey. This sounds like my sense of rhythm in here. That's how I clap. Okay. In the third year, verse 1, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded, now I'm going to butcher some of these names. I'm going to tell you, you're going to get Butch's pronunciation of this name. If you know how to say it, you can come sit beside me and I'll hand you a mic. And each time we go come to it, you can pronounce it. Then the king commanded Espheninus, the chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. All right, let's pause right there for a second. The Babylonian exile, or captivity or exile, refers to the period of Israel's history when the Jews were taken captive by King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. It is an important period of biblical history because both the captivity, exile, and the return and restoration of the Jewish nation were fulfillments of Old Testament prophecies. God used Babylon as his agent of judgment against Israel for their sins of idolatry and rebellion against him. There were actually several different times during this period of 607 to 586 B.C. when the Jews were taken captive by Babylon. With each successive rebellion against Babylonian rule, Nebuchadnezzar would lead his armies against Judah until they laid siege to Jerusalem for over a year, killing many people and destroying the Jewish temple, taking captive thousands of Jews and leaving Jerusalem in ruins. As prophesied in Scripture, the Jewish people would be allowed to return to Jerusalem after 70 years of exile. The prophecy was fulfilled in 537 B.C., And the Jews were allowed by King Cyrus of Persia to return to Israel and begin rebuilding the city and temple. The return under the direction of Ezra Ezra led to a revival among the Jewish people and the rebuilding of the temple. Now, one of the questions that we want to answer is why 70 years? Why was the nation of Israel taken into captivity for 70 years. And the Bible tells us why that is. Israel goes into captivity and exile because they violated God's command. God had commanded that the land was to rest every seven years. Listen to Leviticus 3, 25, verses 3 to 5. For six years you shall sow your field, and for six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather in its fruits. But in the seventh year there will be a Sabbath of solemn rest for the land, 
a Sabbath to the Lord. You shall not sow your field or prune your vineyard. You shall not reap what grows of itself in your harvest or gather the grapes of your undressed vine. It shall be a year of solemn rest for the land. Now, the Sabbath is a principle. When was it first established in the Bible? All right, right. Well, even before the Ten Commandments, back in the, the, the Garden of, of Eden, God, God created everything in how many days? Six. Six days, and he rested on the seventh day. So he established a pattern of rest. Now, I think there's a, a even though, and we're not going to go into this tonight because it's not what the course is on, even though I do not believe we have a Sabbath today, we have the Lord's Day, not the Sabbath day, there is a principle there of rest and that we need rest. And if you violate that principle, you will pay the price for it. God had ordained that they were to work their land how many years? And then what were they to do? Okay, so in addition to the principle of the Sabbath... What else is happening here in relationship to God and his people? Trust. Faith. Because what do you have to trust God for? So for provision that God is going to provide for you. You have to trust God enough to believe that on that seventh year, you're not going to plow, you're not going to plant, you're not going to reap. You are going to trust God so that in year six, he is going to provide enough for you, not only to get you through year six, but also what? Seven. Through year seven and what else? Part of, Part of eight. It is an issue of trusting God. Remember, Israel is a theocracy. God rules. Does God want his people to trust him today? Yes. Does he ask us to exercise faith in him and to trust him? Yes. That's what he was asking of Israel. And in a, a economy that uh, was agricultural, would this be a major issue of trust? I mean, just think of that for a moment. I mean, this is no small step of faith or trust that God is going to ask them. But he commands them every seventh year, you're to let the land rest. Not only that, but it even goes beyond that. In Leviticus 25, in verses 8 to 12, it tells us this. You shall count seven weeks of years, seven times seven years, so that the time of the seven weeks of years shall give you 49 years. Then you shall sound the loud trumpet on the 10th day of the seventh month. On the day of atonement, you shall sound the trumpet throughout all your land. And you shall consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you. Some of you remember those old gospel songs? They're going to have a gospel jubilee. Uh, this is what it's talking about. It shall be a jubilee for you when each of you shall return to his property and each of you shall return to his clan. That 50th year shall be a jubilee for you. In it you shall neither sow nor reap what grows of itself nor gather the grapes from the undressed vines, for it is a jubilee. It shall be holy to you that you may eat the produce of the field. Now think through with me now. 
Is it a big issue of trust to trust God on the seventh year that you're not going to plow? Sure. You're not going to. Now, when the 50th year rolls around, not only are you to, in year 49, you're not to plant or to reap, but then we go to the next year, year number two, you're to trust God from that sixth year from before, from that uh, 48th year to provide for you not only for year 49, but also for year 50. And then it's also going to roll into what? 51. Part of year 51 because you didn't reap and put stuff up. Now, is that an issue of faith here? Sometimes God asks us to believe some big things. Sometimes God says to us, I want you to trust me. And he says, I've got you. I'm, is God aware of our needs? Is he aware of how much it would take to provide for a nation that doesn't do any planning or reaping for two solid years? And, and, and please note, this wasn't a suggestion by God. This was what? Amen. This is what you are commanded to do. So, every six years, or every seventh year, and every 50th year. God also told Israel the consequences if they violated his command. He not only told them the command, but he told them the consequences. Leviticus chapter 26, verse 14. But if you do it, but if you will not listen to me and will not do all these commands. And jumping down to verse 36, and I will scatter you among the nations, and I will unsheath the sword after you, and your land shall be a desolation, and your city shall be a waste. Then the land shall enjoy its Sabbaths as long as it lays, lies desolate. While you are in your enemy's land, then the land shall rest and enjoy its Sabbaths. As long as it lies desolate, it shall have rest, the rest that it did not have on your Sabbaths when you were dwelling in it. So what's God basically telling them? Huh? The land is going to get its rest. It... it it's going to get its rest through your obedience to me. And from your obedience to me, I am going to bless you and provide for you. But if you cannot trust me and do what I have commanded you to do, then you're going to get carried away. What happens while they're in captivity? The land rests and gets them. So why is it 70 years that they are in captivity? Well, from King Saul in 1051 B.C. to the exile in 605 B.C. is 446 years. In any 50 years, there were seven sabbaticals and one jubilee. So within... 50 years scan, there are seven Sabbaths, and there is one year of Jubilee. In 400 years, there would be 56 sabbaticals and eight Jubilees. In addition, there's an additional 46 years, there would be six more Sabbaths or sabbaticals. 56 plus 8 plus 6 equals what? Seven. All right. This is confirmed by 2 Chronicles 36 in verses 20 to 21. There it says, he took into exile, 
He took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped the sword, and they became servants to him and to his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia. So it's talking about Nebuchadnezzar. He takes them there until the, that kingdom is overthrown by Persia. To fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. Why isn't Israel in captivity for 70 years? They disobeyed God. God told them what the consequences would be. But they chose not to trust him. Now, before we're too hard on all these Old Testament Israelites here, you know, because we want this study to be practical as, as, as well as learning, you know, you know, our key is to be doers of the word, not mere hearers of the word of God. Do you ever struggle with obeying God? Yes, the year of Jubilee was set up in uh, Israel that debts were forgiven, land was returned. So basically, God's design was that the land would stay with the families in Israel and with, with the tribes and with the various families. So on the, there are lots of things. We could do a whole study on the year of Jubilee. But on the year of Jubilee, things would revert back to their original owners. So that basically, when people sold their land in Israel, they would basically be selling it till that next year of Jubilee. So, yeah, so if, you know, if you're selling the land and the person can have it for one year, you're going to pay one price for it. If they can have it for the next 69 years, they're going to pay a whole lot more for it. And so, but yeah, Jubilee is, it was a special time where all things connected with it. It was Israel's lack of keeping the scriptures of obeying God that caused them to go into captivity for 70 years. See, let, let me just make a very practical application here for us. How many people do we know in the church that struggle in giving to God the proportion that God wants them to give? People have to, well, I, I, can't, I, I can't afford to, to give that percentage to God. You can't afford not to. You, you, you really can't afford not to. Because our giving is a matter of faith and a matter of trust on our part too. And when we say, God, we can't give to you as we should, what are we really saying? I can't trust you to provide for me if I give to you that amount that you've laid on my heart to give to you. You're saying, God, you're not trustworthy. And here is a perfect example. May, may I say to you this in all honesty? I believe God's going to get his money from you one way or another. He is. If you don't give it freely to him and trust him in faith, there are other ways God can get that money from you. And you'll be wasting it on things. You know, you shouldn't have been wasting it on because you just didn't trust God. I mean, I just, you know, I, I, some, sometimes when I'm talking with someone who, who's struggling with the area of giving, I, I will just say to them, hey, if I promise to pay all your bills, do you think, you know, you could give 10% to God then? If I'm going to say, hey, if you come up short, I'm, I'll take care of it for you. Invariably, they say, yeah, I think I could trust you for that. 
I said, you can trust me, but you can't trust God. <laughs> really? He's got a lot more in his bank account than I have. I mean, he, he, he created a city where we're, you're going to walk on gold. Okay, so Israel didn't trust God. Daniel being carried away into captivity is a result of the disobedience of the nation of Israel. In Psalm 137, there's a psalm that was written from Babylon, and it says this. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung up our lyres. For there our captors required of us songs, and tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you. If I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites the day of Jerusalem. How they said, lay it bare, lay it bare down to its foundations. O daughter of Babylon... Doomed to be destroyed. Blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rocks. Think there's a little bitterness there on the part of the Jews as they're pouring their hearts out to the Lord. They're sad. They're brokenhearted while they are in Babylon. But they are there. Because as a nation, they disobeyed God. Seventy years. So, verse 2 of Daniel 1. I want you to, to note there, the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. The Lord's in control. This is no accident, the events of the book of Daniel. This is no accident that they are being carried away and that they're going to Babylon because the Lord gives them over to Nebuchadnezzar. So even when things are going bad for the Israelites, guess what? Who's still in control? God. So Nebuchadnezzar wants them to bring to Babylon with them certain people. He wants royal family or nobility. He wants youth with no blemish that are good-looking, have good appearance, that are wise and educated. And guess who falls into that group? Yes, We don't know. We, 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 really, we just know that he falls into these categories that, that we're here. There's nothing that tells us that Daniel was one of the king's sons, so I don't think he was in the, the kingly uh, line. He was young. We're going to see that he's very smart uh, and, and good-looking. But the thing that we need to realize is as we, we look at this, because everything we're going to see about Daniel is Daniel's a very righteous man from a very early age. I mean, we should be impressed with the maturity that we're going to see for Daniel in the stands that he's able to take even while he is young. The righteous 
are caught in the judgments of God on the wicked. We sometimes struggle to understand that, don't we? Daniel is not taken away captive for something that he has done. Daniel and these youths are taken away as a result of the nation disobeying God. And, and I think that's true. In any nation that comes underneath, comes under the judgment of God, there are righteous people that are going to suffer with it. Abraham understood that principle. Remember when he, he reasoned with the Lord over the destruction of Sodom? What if there's 50 righteous people there? Even all the way down to 10. But even if, you know, 10 representing the number of Lot's family that would be there, surely they would be walking with God. The New Testament tells us that Lot vexed his righteous soul. Now, he's not the most righteous guy that I would come across based on his behavior. But he was righteous because he followed after God. But godly people sometimes suffer because of the sins of others. And this is the case with Daniel as well. Okay, we see in verses 4 and 5 that they want to take them, educate them. Uh, They're going to give them new names in verses 4 and 5. Their purpose is to teach them uh, language and literature for three years. They're going to school for three years there. Diet, the king wants the best diet for them. So who do you think has the best food in the land? Okay. So they're going to eat food and they're going to have wine to drink from the king's table. Now, Among those taken, verse 6 lets us know that for our purposes of studying the book of Daniel, there are four of them that stand out among the others that are taken. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You say, Butch, why did you use Daniel's Jewish name but use the Babylonian names for the other three? Because they're easier to pronounce. (laughs) (laughs) Notice their names are changed. Daniel, which means God is judge, is changed to Belshazzar, which means may Bel protect his life. Hananiah, Jehovah is gracious, is changed to the command of the Aku. Mishael, who is what God is, to Meshach, which is who is what Aku is. Azariah, the Lord helps, is changed to Abednego, servant of Nebo. All right. Bel was the Babylonian god. Aku was the Babylonian moon god. Nebo was the son of the god Bel. So their names are being in are being changed from Jewish names to Babylonian names. The goal of the Babylonians is to erase the identity of the Israelites. That's what's behind all of this. That's behind. As Babylon would bring in captives from different lands, they want them immersed in the Babylonian culture. And so, therefore, they want to erase to the best of their ability anything from their previous culture, their previous religion, everything. Let's just turn them into Babylonians. Now, in verse 8, we're going to see Daniel's resolve. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank, Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. 
Daniel has a resolve that he is not going to defile himself with the king's food. He is taking a step of courage here. This is no small thing that he's going to do in not wanting to eat of the king's food. Now, question. Why draw a line on the food and the wine, but not on the education, the training, or the name changes? See, he doesn't... To not use it back. Yeah, or, or to take that, to learn what they're using then to use it as a defense mechanism. Okay, he, he's going to go through their training so he can turn it back against them, basically. Okay. Yes. Wasn't it meat sacrificed to God? Okay. Okay, was the meat sacrificed to God's? Was the wine sacrificed there? Same thing. Do you, do you think Daniel liked getting his name changed? No. Some of us might like getting our names changed. But, <laughs> but this is not to something that is Babylonian in nature. He's going to be immersed in their education. Uh, do you think they taught the, the, the latest Christian education there in Babylon? Okay, so it's, it's going to be influenced by the culture they're living in, correct? Yeah. So he's going to have to learn their language. He's going to have to uh, be immersed in that. But there's a reason, there seems to be a reason with the food and with the wine in that that would have been sacrifice to the gods and Daniel would have viewed that as a compromise and something that was forbidden by the law. Now, I think there's an important practical application here for us that I point out here. The difference between what God forbids and what we may not like The food was not prepared according to the Mosaic law. The wine and food had been dedicated to the gods of Babylon. So Daniel is taking the position, we must obey God rather than men. One thing we need to understand, I think that's true to this day, because there are all things, there are, we all have things as Christians we struggle with, Right? We all have things that we like and we dislike. And I could go into different areas here tonight, but I'm not going to take the time to do that. There is a difference between what we don't like and what God forbids. And we have to recognize that. Daniel's whole life is being changed here. You know, there, there's a, a truth that people don't like change. And Christian people especially don't like change. <laughs> well, part of that's because as Christians, we know there are things that can be changed and things that shouldn't be changed. Our struggle is recognizing which is which and not getting as upset over the things that are not biblical issues as we would over biblical issues. And sometimes we have a hard time discerning whether something is actually a... We don't like it because it goes against what God has said, or we don't like it because it's just not what we like. It's not what we grew up with. It's not what we're accustomed to. We just don't like it. There is a difference between them. And that's why Daniel can say, okay, I can go through their education, I can have my name changed, I may not like it, but it doesn't violate the law of God. The food does. And that's where he draws the line. 
And that's where we must recognize with Daniel that we must obey God and not men. Comes to a choice between obeying God. After all, why is Daniel there anyway? Because the nation didn't obey God. And so he's there. All right, let's go on. Verse 9. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. Once again, what are we seeing here? Who's in control? God's in control, and he gives him favor with this man. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you are in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. This eunuch that's over Daniel, he's got a real fear here. This is not made up. Uh, These youth have been entrusted to him, and if they come out looking sickly, who's in trouble? And when he says it may cost him his head, that's not hyperbole. That's reality. Verse 11, then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youth who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. Right? He proposes a test. Try it out. So we listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. Now, I must admit, a vegetable diet would not be something that appealed to me. (laughs) But the choice between eating vegetables and meat that was offered to idols we would have to choose the vegetables. God gives them his favor. And so, as for these four youths, verse 17, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king. The four of them stand out. Now, what's interesting, there were a lot more Israel uh, young men that were carried into captivity besides these four. But evidently, these four were the only ones who would courageously take a stand and say they were going to obey God rather than to obey men. And because of their stand in obeying God, they are blessed by God. God always blesses obedience. He always blesses obedience. It may not always be in the way we expect or we think, but he always blesses those who are obedient to him. That's why that's so important. Verse 20, And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. Now, you know, that's pretty amazing, especially it's 10 times better, not than the other youths that were brought and carried there, but 10 times better than all his advisors. He's giving better answers than they gave. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. So this is just a a statement reading forward. Daniel is going to be there in Babylon in various positions from here until King Cyrus uh, comes. And 
we must endure and be faithful in serving God. All right, any questions over chapter 1? Sue. The blessings that they received because they were obedient to God as they understood that, would that be parallel to the blessings that God talked about in Deuteronomy 28? Finally, he's got some obedient servants of Israel. Well, I, I think it's just God being faithful to these youth for the stand that they have, have taken. And I think that's just a principle of God. He blesses those who obey him. I think you find that all the way through the scriptures. There's blessing from obedience. Any other questions? Okay, let's close with a word of prayer today. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the example of Daniel. We pray, Father, that you would help us, that we might be faithful to you. Father, help us like Daniel, that we might choose to obey you in all things. And Father, I just thank you for everyone here tonight. I ask that you will bless them. May your hand be upon them. Give them all a good night's sleep. And whatever they do tomorrow, may you bless even as they, they obey you. For this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.